Amen. Good afternoon. 1202. Uh, If you've got a Bible, go ahead and open it up. We're going to be Hebrews chapter 1. Uh, We started a new series last week, if you weren't here with us, and we looked at the first four verses of Hebrews chapter 1. Today, we're going to pick up in verse 4, kind of get a rolling start here, and then work through the end of the chapter, which is verse 14. So if you have a Bible, open that up. While you do, um, I I just want to take a couple minutes. I've done this at the start of each of our services, but um, we, because we have a you know, we're non-denominational, and we get, we get people who come to this church from any number of different, whether it be denominational backgrounds or church uh, cultures who kind of end up here. Maybe you grew up with one thing, and now you're here. We get people who have various preferences and tastes and desires when it comes to worship songs. And so today... Uh, at least the last three worship songs that we sang kind of all have a little bit more, whether it's modern or historical, more of a hymn feel to them. You might have stood there thinking to yourself, I really prefer it when we do the things that feel more like Hillsong or Elevation or whoever, uh, something more modern and contemporary. And oftentimes when the thing that is our preference is playing, we feel very like emotionally engaged, very Uh, connected to that. When the thing that's not our preference is playing, um, you know, we stand there and maybe we kind of like mumble along with the words and we think to ourselves, ah, I'm just not really feeling it. Um, I say that to say this. The issue in worship is never whether or not you're feeling it. Our worship team doesn't spend time at their rehearsals and in picking songs and Um, with us planning services, trying to figure out how it is to like manipulate the emotions of the largest percentage of people that are here on any given Sunday so that we can kind of move everyone to one place. Our worship team spends time picking songs, regardless of their genre, that help us as a congregation sing the truths of the gospel. Sometimes that's more contemporary and modern. Sometimes we sing something older. Sometimes it's something that's new that has an older feel to it. What matters to us is that we sing the glorious truths of the gospel. And we can do that no matter how we're feeling at any given moment. There might be Sundays where you come in here and you stepped on the dog when you got out of bed, then wrestled three kids into just something presentable to go out into public, and then you had a little argument in the car because you were frazzled about the dog and the kids, and then you spilt your coffee on our carpet and added a new stain to what is rather disgusting when we move the chairs. And you're thinking to yourself, it doesn't matter what we sing this morning, I'm not going to feel it. Sing anyway. We're singing the truths of the gospel. You may be someone who connects very intensely and very powerfully through music. You might be someone who says, you know what, my lens is usually more through scripture and the singing's a little bit more of a challenge to me. It doesn't matter. God's primary concern when we come before him to worship is not whether or not we're feeling it in any given moment. It's whether or not our hearts are bowed down before him because he is seated on the throne. Come, let us adore him. Nothing can compare. Come, let us adore him. And so we gather together and we sing. 
and we sing the truths of the gospel. And that's not so that we can get ourselves into a place where now I'm ready for the sermon. Or I really hope this music kind of serves me. That is to take the worship service and make it about ourselves. We gather together as a body so that we can worship the Lord and glorify Him alongside one another. And if we treat worship some other way, then we, we're kind of misusing and, and wasting half of our time together. And so I offer that this morning because I was, I was personally convicted by that this morning during first service. That's, um, I worship in first service with my wife. And um, there are times where I come in and it feels like I'm just, this is hard this morning. I'm struggling to like get myself going or whatever the case might be. And the reality is I was just struck fresh this morning that it's the truths of the gospel that we sing. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and who is and who evermore shall be. And if I need to feel it in order to sing that, there's a problem with my heart, not with the music. And so we're not, we're done with the music portion of the service. We're not like looping back to that, but something to think about as you prepare yourself to come into worship next week. Amen? Amen. Let's pray and then we'll jump into Hebrews. God, thank you for this morning. God, for the chance to come and to sing, for the chance to come and to be together as a church family, to serve, to engage with you in your word, God. Lord, I pray that all of those elements of worshiping you this morning, God, that they would be about you and not about us. God, that if our hearts are in a place where that's not the case, Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would convict. Lord, I confess that at times I come in and it would be easier to make the whole service just about myself. How does the music make me feel? What does this scripture mean to me, Lord? But God, I pray that this morning, this would be all about you. What do the words say about you? What does scripture say about you? How is it that my heart should be captivated by you, Lord? Would you be the center of this this morning, God? In in all that we do and all that we say and how we interact and how we approach the scriptures and how we approach the songs, Lord, would you be glorified and lifted high, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, as I was putting this together, I couldn't really remember exactly what grade it is where you learn how to reduce fractions, where you learn that like five out of 10 is the same as one half. You know, you find the common denominator, you get it reduced down to the least common denominator, you make everything work together, so 5 out of 20 is 1 fourth, 8 out of 64 is an eighth, and on and on and on and on. At some point, we learn how to do that as children in school, and then as we get older, we just kind of start to approximate things. So if there were 1,000 seats in an auditorium somewhere and 500 people were there, it was half full. But if 501 people were there, we would also probably say it was half full, right? Like, let's not quibble over a fraction of a percent in terms of how many people were there. But in the words of Drew Matthews, who is the leader of our Western Asia team and was on our staff for a long time, he used to say, I like accuracy. <laughs> to Drew Matthews, 501 out of 1,000, not a half. That's more than a half. And it matters. 
The author of Hebrews starts in the first four verses of this book writing to or speaking to a group of Jewish Christians, and he lays out in just kind of dazzling clarity the nature of who Jesus is, that he's the culmination of God's spoken revelation, that he's the matchless son of God, he's the heir of all things, the creator of all things, the sustainer of all things, he's the radiance of God's glory, the exact expression of his nature, that he is the the end of sacrifice. He's purified for sins and he sat down at the majesty of the right hand on high and now he is elevated above the angels. And then as if to drive home the point a little further, the author says, and you cannot reduce him to something lesser. And in order to make that proclamation, the author of Hebrews goes through seven Old Testament quotations that display that Jesus is superior to angels. Now, why that particular comparison first? That's because Jewish Christians in the first century were often pressured by other Jewish individuals or religious leaders at the time to reduce Jesus to just something less than the divine Son of God. Call him a prophet if you want to, that's totally fine. Call him an angel, even an archangel if you want to, but let's just agree that he's something less than God. And the author of Hebrews says, no, he's not. Because to diminish the nature of Jesus would be to deny the nature of Jesus. That's the main takeaway from these verses. We cannot reduce Jesus Christ to anything less than all of his glorious nature that's described in the first few verses. And so what we've got are seven Old Testament quotations. We're going to work our way through kind of eight points about how it is exactly that Jesus is greater than the angels. And then at the end of it all, I want to give three kind of pastoral thoughts about how this relates to us today. And so if you'll follow along with me, I'm going to start reading in verse four, and I'm going to read through the end of the chapter. So that so links to the first three verses. He became superior to the angels, just as the name he inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, today I have become your father. Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. Again, when he brings his firstborn into the world, he says, and let all God's angels worship him. And about the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his servants a fiery flame. But to the son, your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of justice. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. This is why God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of joy before your companions. And in the beginning, Lord, you established the heaven... You establish the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will wear out like clothing. You will roll them up like a cloak, and they will be changed like clothing, but you are the same, and your years will never end. Now, to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve those who are going to inherit salvation? In order to do this well, we're going to have to talk some about angels in general. Now, to be clear up front, I'm not going to be able in our time here to answer all of the lingering questions you might have about the nature or the role of angels and just to work through like all of our curiosities. But there are some general things about angels that I want to point out at the start. And then as we go, we'll kind of see angels and who they are in relation to Jesus and who he is. And so in general... 
It's important to know that angels are an entirely different order of created being than humans. We share some similarities. Similarity number one is that we're both moral beings. We have the ability, both angels and humans, to choose whether or not to be obedient to God or to disobey his moral will. Angels and humans are the only two things in all of the created universe that have that ability to choose autonomously obedience or disobedience. Angels and humans are both also intelligent beings, and that doesn't mean that other creatures are not smart, but instead it means that there's a distinction or a difference in the intellectual capabilities between us and angels and the rest of God's creation. And yet, despite those two similarities, we're a totally different order of created thing. And I say that because I feel this is important. I think it's important to point out that when someone dies, you cannot become an angel. We hear that language at funerals frequently. But when you die, or when someone you love dies, you cannot become an angel. Nor would you want to. And that's where I want to spend a moment here. Let me explain why. Angels, for all of their magnificence, will not experience redemption. Some of the angels in heaven right now have not fallen. They have not made the choice to sin against the Lord. Therefore, they need no redemption. They don't need to be saved from any amount of sin. Other angels have fallen with Lucifer. And now they never have the opportunity to be redeemed. Scripture makes it clear that at the end of all things, the fallen angels will experience the exact same eternal punishment that Satan himself will experience, which in Revelation 20, we're told, is to be cast into the lake of sulfur, which will burn forever and ever for all of eternity. There's no hope for fallen angels who've chosen to sin to be redeemed. Now, follow me here. If when you die or your loved one dies, they become an angel, they've just forfeit their right to redemption. And you would stand before the Lord, marked by a lifetime of sin, and what would be the just punishment for that? Eternity separated from Him. You don't become an angel when you die, and you would not want to, because to do so would be to forfeit the glorious claim you have to salvation and redemption thanks to the work of Jesus Christ on your behalf. We'll share in worshiping with the angels. We'll experience new heaven and new earth alongside the angels. We'll get to behold the unmitigated glory of God in eternity as the angels are doing right now. But you and no one else you've ever known will become an angel. We're a different order of created being. Both have moral autonomy. Both are highly intelligent. And yet, we're something different fundamentally from them. Let's... Continue to work this out. Verse 4. So he became superior to the angels, just as the name he inherited is more excellent to theirs. And then here's the description or the explanation of that. Verse 5. Two quotations. The first one from Psalm 2. The second one from 2 Samuel chapter 7. For to which of the angels did he, that's God, ever say, you are my son, today I have become your father. Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. The answer to that rhetorical question is none of them. God has said that to none because his name, the son's name, Jesus's name is greater than the angel's name. 
a son is greater than a messenger. That's what angel means. It means messenger, both in the Hebrew and in the Greek. The Hebrew word is malach, M-A-L apostrophe A-K. The Greek word is angelos. Both of those, used over 300 times in the Bible, translate to messenger. That name tells us what their role and their purpose is. They are messengers of the Lord. Jesus, on the other hand, is the Son, eternal Son. And a son is always greater than the messenger. Let me illustrate. Abraham Lincoln had a door uh, on the side of his office. And no matter who was in his office at any given time, his youngest son, Tad Lincoln, could come over to that door and knock on it. And Abraham Lincoln would look at the people in his office and he would say, gentlemen, I'm obligated to answer that because that is my son. It didn't matter who the messenger was, what the meeting was about. His son was greater than whatever was happening in the room, whoever the messenger was. And the same is true with Jesus. The son is always greater than a messenger. A note here uh, on the Psalm 2 quotation. It says, you are my son, today I have become your father. That's what the CSB says. It might be easy uh, to read that and think to yourself, Jesus became God's son when he was born. Is that when that happened? No, that's not when that happened. The ESV translation of this is actually better. It's clearer, more true to what the original says. The ESV says, today I have begotten you. That word begotten means to reveal in a unique way. So that passage is God saying, look, you've always been my son, but today I've revealed you in a unique way. To revisit last week, Jesus is the dawning of God's glory on earth. That's a unique expression that took place when Jesus was born. The dawning of the radiance of God's glory. Verse 6, number 2. Again, when he brings his firstborn into the world, he says, and let all God's angels worship him. Jesus' glory is greater because the one who is worshipped is always greater than the one who is worshipping. That quote comes from Deuteronomy 32, verse 43. One of the great role of the angels is to worship God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies. He, or his glory fills the whole earth. That's Isaiah 6. Revelation 3, the angels proclaim, Worthy is the Lamb who was slaughtered to receive countless power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and blessing. Blessing and honor and glory and power be to the one seated on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. Both those passages, those are the angels worshiping the Son. They worship through song. They worship through immediate joyful obedience. They worship right now in the very presence of God. And one of the great realities of the Son is that He is the one who is worshiped. Philippians chapter 2, 9, 10, and 11. God highly exalted Him and gave Him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He is greater his name is greater. He inherited the name that is above all names and his glory is greater. He is the one who is worshiped. Angels fulfill their role of worshiping, which is to their credit, but they are not the one to be worshiped. That honor belongs to Jesus. Verse seven, and about the angels, he says, that's God. He makes his angels winds and his servants a fiery flame. That quotation is from Psalm 104. Jesus's role is greater. That's because Jesus accomplishes God's will, 
while the angels assist God's will. That's what this tells us. He makes the angels his servants, the angels his winds. Another important role of the angels is that they are servants to the Lord's will and purposes. They're often the means by which the Lord brings his will to fruition. That's an aspect of the angels' worship. When they're told to go and do something, they go and they do it. To act and to serve in obedience is an expression of worship. Let me say that again. To act and to serve in obedience is an expression of worship. That's true for the angels. It's also true for us. When we see something in Scripture that God has clearly commanded us to do, it is an expression of worship to act and to serve obediently according to what the Lord has commanded. The angels in heaven do that perfectly. Jesus, on the other hand, is the one who came not merely to serve the Lord's will, but to fulfill it, to secure it, to complete it. Let me tie these first three together. As the Son... Sharing in the essence of God's divine nature, Jesus fulfilled the will of God in securing salvation for fallen humanity and is thus worthy of worship. On the other side are angels, who as messengers assist in fulfilling the role of communicating God's message and carrying out his acts, but they cannot deliver it over to us in the way that Jesus did. For that reason, their role is lesser, their name is lesser, their glory is lesser, and to look forward at verse 8, their rule is is lesser. But to the Son, so to the angels, he said, I made you servants. To the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of justice. Jesus' rule is greater. That quotation, and it continues down in verse 9, is from Psalm 45. Jesus' rule is greater forever and ever. And yet, If you're a note taker, jot down because we're going to get to Hebrews chapter 2, verses 6 to 8, where there's this mystery laid out for us. It needs to be noted here for a moment. During his earthly life, Jesus willingly became what the author of Hebrews says is a little lower than the angels for a time. Hebrews 2, 6 to 8. Now, for eternity past, Jesus has been on the throne. Forever and ever, your throne endures. In eternity future, Jesus will be on the throne. Forever and ever, your throne endures. For a short time, 33 years, he was made a little lower than the angels. But the author of Hebrews wants to be clear. Don't think that that changed anything. Jesus was still ruling and reigning, even though he was here on earth. He was made a little lower in human likeness, but that in no way altered the reality of his eternal reign. His name was still greater. His glory was still greater. His role was still greater. His rule was still greater. As a side note, we are made a little lower than the angels right now, clothed in our frail and broken humanity. But 1 Corinthians chapter 6 says that when we are brought into full glory, when we are glorified, we are going to rule and judge over the angels. We will be superior to them. That's incredible to think about. We are a little lower than the angels right now. The difference is that we don't rule from eternity past to eternity future over all things. We will be co-heirs with Christ, and part of that will include having judgment over the angels. He is on the throne forever and ever. Verse 9, Jesus's holiness 
is greater. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. This is why God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of joy in the presence of your companions. Perfection is greater than unpredictability. As I mentioned in the beginning, angels are moral beings. Those angels in heaven are holy and without sin, but they exist with the ability to sin. Their nature is such that they have the choice whether or not to be obedient to the Lord. Jesus, on the other hand, is entirely without sin. He has loved righteousness all of his eternal days, whether in heaven or on earth. He has hated lawlessness all of his eternal days, whether on heaven or whether in heaven or on the earth. The angels, on the other hand, are unpredictable. By further contrast, we are very predictable. We are going to sin. The angels are unpredictable. Some of them will not. Some of them have. Jesus is perfect. Loved righteousness all of his days. Hated lawlessness all of his days. The angels in heaven, though without sin, do not sing holy, holy, holy about themselves. They sing it about Jesus because his holiness is perfect. Verses 10 through 11, or 10 through 12, sorry. And in the beginning, Lord, you established the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will wear out like clothing. You will roll them up like a cloak. They will be changed like clothing, but you are the same and your years never end. Jesus's existence is greater. He is eternal. Angels are immortal. And now we need to do a little work with those two words because normally we would probably use them interchangeably. We think of the word eternal as meaning that it has no end going forward. But for something to truly be eternal, it also has no beginning point. The word immortal means that something will continue on without end, but it has a starting point. For the sake of comparison, your soul is immortal. It was created at a certain point. It will never die. The angels are the same way. They were created at a certain point. They will never die. Let me borrow an illustration from geometry. The images are up there. Think of a line. Think back to your geometry days. A line has an arrow on both sides. Why is that? To signify that that line continues on in the same direction without change forever. It would never end. A ray, on the other hand, has a starting point and then continues in one direction where the arrow is for all time and would never change. Jesus, eternal like a line, forever, no change, no beginning, no end. Angels, immortal like a ray, a beginning point. They were created, they're finite, but they will continue on. You could think about it this way. Go with me here. It's a little mind-bending. If you were to try to start counting at negative infinity, you would never reach zero because negative infinity just continues on. Jesus is like that. No beginning point. You can't trace it back to the very start. On the other hand, if you started at zero and you tried to count to positive infinity, you'd never reach the end but at least you had a starting point. Eternal versus immortal. Jesus' existence is greater because he is eternal. That means angels are finite beings. They're not omni-anything. They're not omnipresent. An angel can only be in one spot. You get the 
feeling from Scripture that they can travel very quickly, but they can only be in one place. Angels are not omniscient. They can't know everything. They can only know the situation that they're looking at right in front of themselves. Angels are not omnipotent. You get the feeling from Scripture that they've got unbelievable power, and yet that power pales in comparison to the infinite power of the creator of the universe. To revisit last week, Jesus, eternal, sustainer of all things, were he to remove his sustaining hand, he would still exist. Angels would go into oblivion. He is eternal. Angels are not. His existence is greater. Verse 13. Jesus' position is greater. Now to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool? The answer to that question is to none of them. That comes from Psalm 110. Jesus is the only one who's ever going to be on the throne. And to be on the throne is greater than to be around the throne. Even the greatest of all angels will never ascend to Jesus' place. Not Michael, not Gabriel, not Lucifer who tried. Instead, the angels in heaven will forever surround the throne upon which Jesus sits. Jesus, uh, Hebrews chapter 1 said, is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high while the angels are seated before him on the ground. Jesus will forever exist on the throne while the angels are face down on the ground around the throne. His position is greater. And then last in verse 14, are they angels, not all ministering spirits, sent out to serve those who are going to inherit salvation? Jesus' ministry is greater. They are ministering spirits sent out to serve. Angels are servants. Jesus is the Savior. And the Savior is greater than the servant. One final aspect of an angel's role is that they serve humanity. They do this in a number of ways. I'm not going to give an exhaustive list, but here are some of them. They communicate God's purposes to humanity. Think of Abraham being told about Sodom and Gomorrah through the visiting of angels. Think about Zechariah, Mary, and Joseph being told about the births of John the Baptist and Jesus through angels. Think about the angels in the field communicating the birth of Jesus to the shepherds. They communicate. They also protect humanity. Scripture makes it clear that angels have this protective sort of role that they play over humanity. Now, that instantly begs the question about do we all have one specific guardian angel that's assigned to us when we're born, carries on with us throughout our entire life, and like, you know, stops other cars from bumping into us or keeps us from stepping on Legos in the middle of the night or whatever the case might be? Or does it work some other way? Are the angels playing zone defense or are they playing man-to-man? What is it? Scripture actually doesn't make it entirely clear for us to say certain one way or the other on that. What we can say for certain about that, this is to revisit the beginning, is that regardless how much you loved someone or how much someone loved you, when they passed away, they did not become your guardian angel. That's not how it works. Angels are an entirely different created order. That person that you love very deeply, that you lost, or the person that loved you very deeply, when they passed away, they did not become your guardian angel. That's simply not how it works. 
But angels do have this role of protecting humanity. In Scripture, we also see angels encouraging humanity, comforting humanity, guiding humanity, delivering humanity. They do all of that as agents of the Lord's will, servants of His will. To loop all the way back to where we started, angels are messengers. They worship the Lord. They serve the Lord's purposes. They serve humanity. Jesus, on the other hand, is the Son who has come to save God's people from their sin. Angels are servants. Jesus is Savior, and the Savior is always greater than a servant. His ministry is infinitely greater than that of the angels. To diminish the nature of Jesus in any way, to try to reduce him down to something lesser would be to deny the nature of Jesus. For the Jewish Christians in the first century, it was important for them to understand that you cannot reduce Jesus down to an angel. He's greater than that. The author of Hebrews is going to go on in the rest of this letter and point out a bunch of other instances whereby you cannot reduce Jesus down to just a priest. You can't reduce him down to someone like Moses. He's infinitely greater. John Piper says this about angels. Jesus Christ is infinitely superior to angels. They were created not to compete with Christ, but to worship Christ and honor him. Angels were created for Christ's everlasting glory. All right, what do we do with that? You're probably not ever going to face the experience where someone approaches you and says, I need you to admit that Jesus was nothing more than an angel right now. And you're going to think to yourself, well, good thing I've got my handy dandy proof texts from Hebrews chapter one for how it is that I can refute that. That's probably not ever going to happen for you. So what do we do with something like Hebrews 1, 4 4 to 14? I want to give you three thoughts as we close this morning that are just kind of pastoral encouragements for you related to this. Number one is this, that a knowledge of angels helps us treasure the reality of reality. Let me explain what I mean. The deepest realities in our lives are spiritual realities not physical. Unfortunately, we spend about 95% of our time thinking about the physical things and giving maybe just passing thoughts to the deeper spiritual realities that exist in our world. Something pops up in our circumstances, maybe a very difficult season where you feel like there's a lot of trouble swirling around you and you're not the cause of any of it, and you work tirelessly to try to eliminate those or to smooth out those circumstances. And then maybe years down the road, you look back and think to yourself, maybe God taught me something spiritually through that. In the moment, the hard circumstance, the health crisis, the loss of a job, the relational tension, there's a spiritual reality in that right in the moment that is beneficial for us to think about. Scripture mentions angels 300 times as if God is saying, don't lose sight of the fact that there's more happening around you than you can see with your eyeballs. There's more happening around you than you can touch and hold with your hands. Right now, probably in this very room, God is waging and winning a spiritual battle and the angels are fighting alongside him in doing so. 
They are fighting right now the fallen angels who serve as the forces of Satan. They're working alongside God in the expansion of his kingdom. When Christ returns at the end of all things, it will be an angel that heralds his coming and it will be legions of angels who accompany him in the battle. That's happening now. Not Christ's final coming, but that battle is being waged. And we can't see it, and therefore we hardly ever think about it, and we give very little thought oftentimes to the spiritual realities of our daily lives. And yet those realities are deepest. Jesus Christ died to save you from sin, which is a spiritual reality. He died in order to change your spiritual eternity. The deepest realities are spiritual. And when we think about angels, we should be reminded of that, sent back to that. Number two, a knowledge of angels helps us to treasure our salvation. When we think about angels, when Scripture mentions them, both those in heaven and those who have fallen, we should be reminded of the wonder of salvation. If you're a note taker, jot down 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 to 12. In that short little section, Peter says that angels long to catch a glimpse of the mystery of salvation. Think about that. They're moral beings, some who have chosen to sin. They have no chance of being redeemed from that sin. And right now, they see God face to face, beholding His glory, and simultaneously, get this, wish that they could experience grace. They know of grace. They've seen God act in grace and mercy, but they'll never taste it for themselves. And so scripture tells us that angels long to look in to the glory of the mystery of that. That there would be angels right now, whether in this room or however it works, that they're looking into this room, seeing a group of people gathered in a local church singing the praises of a God who has extended grace and love and mercy to us. And the angels say, I wonder what that's like. How marvelous is that? I understand it cognitively, but I'll never understand it personally and experientially. And I long to look into it. That is amazing. What a gift our salvation is that the very beings who sit around the throne in heaven right this moment would long to understand it for themselves personally, that is staggering. We should treasure our salvation. And then last, a knowledge of angels helps us to treasure the Savior. To reduce, reduce Jesus to anything less than sovereign King and sovereign Lord of the universe is to fundamentally deny His nature. When you do that, you've disqualified Him as Savior. Though we will likely never be asked to put him on the same plane as an angel, we may be pressured to reduce him to a prophet, to a teacher, to a good moral example, maybe to a a great religious person or a historical figure who did some good things, or maybe we might be pressured to reduce him to one of multiple ways to heaven. The author of Hebrews wants to be clear. It's inaccurate to reduce Jesus in any form. Don't do it. Know who Jesus is in all of his splendor and all of his majesty and then refuse to make anything less of him. 
Treasure Him for all of His unending glory and allow your heart to cling to the beauty and and reality that because of that unending glory, He is the only thing that can save, the only thing that can satisfy, and the only thing that can sustain. As soon as you allow yourself to make less of Him, the next step is away from Him and towards something else. You can guarantee yourself that. I would venture to say that all of our sin began in a place where in our heart we reduced Jesus to something lesser than something else and then pursued the other thing instead. The author of Hebrews in chapter 1 makes zero statements of application. Eight observations about the nature of Jesus, eight Testaments to the fact that Jesus is greater than the angels, and then he just kind of leaves it at that. As if to say, what more could you possibly need than to stare into the face of a Savior who is that marvelous? In chapter 2, he's going to go on and kind of begin to apply that for a short section, but in chapter 1, he just lets it stand. And so, what's the actual application here? Get Jesus in front of your heart and in front of your mind and in front of your eyeballs every day. He's greater than anything else. We need that reminder all the time. That we would go about our day, whether at work or while relaxing, at a sports practice or in your classes, whether in your marriage or in your friendships and relationships, in your family, whatever the case might be, and we would hold Jesus up as the superior thing to all other things. And when we're tempted to think otherwise, we'd run to places like Hebrews chapter 1 and remind ourselves of just how glorious He is. It sounds very simple, but it honestly isn't rocket science. To follow Jesus is to just stare at the beauty of the Savior as much as possible in all that you do. It really is that easy. Now, there are times where our flesh and our heart makes that very, very challenging, and everything inside of us wants to run in another direction, and that is precisely the time where you pull yourself back and say, I'm just going to look at the Savior and treasure Him for how marvelous He is. Amen? Amen. Let's pray, and then we'll go. God, thank you for this morning. Lord, thank you that Jesus is the only one who can save. Thank you that he's the only one who can sustain and satisfy. God, thank you that Jesus is greater than anything else, Lord, that we can stake all of who we are upon him because he will never, ever fail in his role as the matchless son who created and sustains and will inherit all things, who is your exact expression and the radiance of your glory. God, I pray that when our hearts start to wander a different direction, Lord, would you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, call us back to the Savior. With our words, Lord, would we never reduce Jesus to something lesser than who he is? In our hearts, Lord, would we never reduce Jesus to something lesser than who he is? God, would we treasure him above all things? God, would we be a church who first and foremost beholds the beauty of our God seated on his throne? 
would we come and adore him. God, would we behold our king, knowing in our hearts and in our minds and clinging to the reality that nothing else can compare. And in response, would we worship and adore him? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Have a great week.